We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome back. The American automobile industry has always been extremely competitive. Often what made the difference in year-to-year sales was exterior and interior design. General Motors was often the winner in design because of one man, Harley Earl. His story and the story of the automobile industry's influence on the economy and culture in the 20th century is neatly told in the book Fins by former St. Louisan and Umsel grad William Nadelzader. He joins me in studio, and he also is the author of Bitter Brew, The History of the Anheuser-Busch Dynasty. Bill Nadelzader. I'm sorry, I mispronounced it there, Bill. Good to talk to you again. We talked about Bitter Brew some years ago. Yes, good to be back in ho- back home here. Yeah, well, welcome home. Uh, this book of yours, wonderful read. It really is quite a history book, isn't it? It's not just about design. It's about the history of the 20th century. Well, exactly. I tried to specifically make it not a book about cars. Yeah. It had to be a bigger story than that. But it fo- focuses and centers on one Harley Earl, a name probably not well known to very many Americans, though it should be. That's right. Uh, Harley became famous in the 50s for for being the father of the Corvette and for putting fins on cars, which became the rage. But but the fins thing I use as a metaphor in the book, but it's probably the least of his accomplishments. He was basically the kind of uh, Steve Jobs of his time who changed the course of the industry by the car industry uh, by asking the question, what should an American car look like? What should it embody? Not how you know they all they all worked at that point he did the steve jobs thing yeah but they got to look like something they're american cars they're not european cars and he was the winner most of the time when it came to, yeah, came yeah. Time and he to was, sell cars yeah and he was a, a, a eccentric colorful irascible uh, difficult dyslexic designer yeah. you know you know what struck me uh, and it's, it starts uh, the book starts this way is the role that hollywood played in the early days of the automotive industry. We always think of Detroit. We don't think of Hollywood. And that's, that surprised me. I had no idea when I started in on this, and I started realizing where he came from, that he started out in a little village you know, up in the hills and called mm-hmm. Hollywood mm-hmm. because his father made carriages, and he started hanging around you know, uh, young silent movie stars and started designing one-of-a-kind bodies for their cars, these kids who had become impossibly famous and impossibly rich, and he started doing that uh, right around the time that GM, which was an also-ran company back then, they were way down, and Ford dominated. Ford did 62% of the cars on the road Mm -hmm. were Fords, and GM was trying to figure out how you compete with that, and they came up with the idea, well, if we made our cars better looking and changed them more often, well, how do we do that? Well, they heard about this kid on the West Coast, and they hired him, and he figured it out. Well, the kid in the West Coast, uh, these Hollywood stars could afford the cars. Yes. It was a brand new industry back right. in the day when he got started. Right. Uh, and um, it went from there and it went big time 
St. Louis was involved in the early days, too. As, as cars began to become more popular and more companies were making them, St. Louis was in the mix for a while. Sure. Well, the, well the, the, in the early days, there were, there were several hundred companies making right. cars, and they were mostly in the mid-Atlantic and the Midwest. Right. The, the towns where cars were made were surprising, you know. Right. And then it was the Depression that wiped out all those, those companies. And all, you know, they, they disappeared after that and came back, and there was, you know, six or seven. And then there were only three. So that's how it happened. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but we'll certainly point out that St. Louis did become later on in the century an important uh, car manufacturing center in and of itself. And the, the birthplace of the Corvette was where the first Corvettes were made in St. Louis. Uh, what, what did Harley have to do with the Corvette? Well, it was his idea. Yeah. Okay. Harley. Yeah. Harley w- took one of his other des- one-of-a-kind design cars to Watkins Glen Grand Prix in 1950. Uh, he took it up to show it off for the weekend, and he noticed that all these college kids were there in the town, you know, for the race, and they were all parked around. They were sitting with MGs and the X, uh, Jaguar X, XK120s, and he thought, well, you know what? We don't have a car like that. We don't. America doesn't make a car for young people like a sports car, which they apparently want. So he went back to to Detroit and said, talked to his staff and says, let's let's make one. Let's design something that they would they would want. Uh, but because it was a big corporation and, you know, things take a long time and they don't go the way he thought, they, they ended up with the car that fit the description of what he wanted. Okay, it looked that way and it was mm-hmm. kind of a stripped-down uh, car. I mean, it, didn't, it was very European like an MG. I mean, you didn't even have outside door handles. You reached in these, these flap, yeah. flap windows and you pulled a cord to open the door. But at $3,500, the kids – couldn't afford that, so they were trying to market it in the beginning to, you know, middle-aged or, or you know, thirty-five-year-old, you second, know, well, second childhood uh, types. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. And they didn't want a car that didn't have door handles, so yeah. it almost failed out of the box. Am I right in remembering that one time St. Louis was the second largest auto manufacturing town in the country? I don't. That's. I have not heard that, but that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been after after the depression. And, yeah, but it could have been probably, you know, in the 60s maybe even. Again, I point out that your book is a history. And one of the things that people will find fascinating if they don't know it already, uh, you talk about Harley Earl and you talk about GM. But Henry Ford comes into the picture prominently in a number of different ways. And he was quite a guy and certainly quite an influence on on uh, the auto industry and on, on history itself. Oh, yeah. I mean, Henry Ford, you know, the, the, the I was surprised to learn, I never thought of this before, that the automobile was invented to solve the problem of horse poop. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that yeah, was the right. big environmental problem in the United States and all the cities. There were so many horses. And in New York, they were shoveling up 15 million pounds a day and getting rid of it. So mm-hmm. there was a race uh, on among uh, the young generation of, of young men, all men, uh, because that's the way it was back then, to come up with, with this self-propelled vehicle that would take – People and their stuff from one point to the next efficiently and, and without creating a mess that had to be cleaned up behind them. And, and Henry Ford was the guy who won that race. And he produced a very st- stable, dependable uh, car that got you there. And it caught, his idea was a dependable car that would last you a long time and wouldn't cost much and you could fix it yourself. And then beyond that, he didn't have an imagination beyond that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when everybody sort of got a car after, you know, he'd been making that Model T unchanged for, you know, almost to the, visually unchanged, you know, for 15 years, that's when Harley came along and his background in Hollywood and the movie business 
had taught him to to create and design toward people's aspirations and and what people imagine in their dreams and all that sort of stuff, which I don't think would have ever occurred to Henry Ford. He didn't have an artistic bone in his body. No, this was an opportunity, needless to say, yeah. for, for General Motors. Right. Another, and I, I want to go back in a moment to an earlier time, but I wanted to point out that Henry Ford was quite the anti-Semite, oh. and he caught out of Hitler's eye at one point. And both of these companies, GM and, uh, and Ford, um, in a sense, worked with Hitler. I mean, they provided they provided him uh, machines to oh, wage war with. Oh yeah. Well, he was the only other car market. The thing was, he didn't just he he he, he idolized Henry Ford. Henry Ford was his hero. Mm-hmm. And when he was in prison at one time before he became the chancellor, he read uh, uh, um, uh, Henry Ford's book about his life, and he said he realized that he could regenerate the German economy if he re- if he got the car business going because they, they made cars for rich people in Germany. Mm-hmm. They didn't do it like, the, like, the, like in America. And, and he did that. He, he, he staffed his factories with Ford engineers. Uh, and they were all too eager to get in on that new market that was coming, you know, that he was building. And, 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 and Hitler never learned to drive, but he is the guy who, who came up with the idea for the Volkswagen. That was, I think, probably even his name. He sat down one day in a, in a, uh, a restaurant in Munich and drew a picture on a napkin, mm-hmm. you know, then gave it to Ferdinand, Por- Ferdinand Porsche and said, it'd be like this. Mm-hmm. And any American who looked at that napkin today would recognize a beetle. You know, that's what, it came out looking that way. And you know. GM was selling automobiles also at the same time sure. in Europe, or at least responsible for their production. And those were used also as Hitler was on, when he was on the move. Well, they, they, they built – GM and Ford built the majority of the trucks that rolled across all those borders carrying mm-hmm. all those soldiers and, and, and weapons and supplies during the Blitzkrieg. And they tried to play that down, you know, because they said, well, we didn't really. And, they, and, and GM didn't really control that, you know, after a while. They were sort of moved out by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. I've got some of that in there. As the Nazis took over, they started getting kind of disturbed, you know, like, ooh. And they weren't, they were just there, but they weren't directing things, you know. We have to point out uh, on the other side of the coin is the role that the automobile, uh, automobile industry played during World War II. I mean, it was so totally retooled to support the war effort. Tell us, tell us uh, something about that and how it worked. Well, it, it, and, I, and this was this was because of what Harley did, and I argued this in the book, and some people might argue otherwise, but because of Harley's. Uh, influence in design and playing to the people's desires, that's what caused the, the car industry to explode way beyond what, what Henry Ford had ever imagined. So that it, was, it became, you know, it became our defining product. Uh, and, and the U.S. economy was a car economy. It depended on the car. If GM sales went down, it sparked a, a, a recession, you know, within a week. So, but but what happened was then it became so big, employing one in six Americans, when all of a sudden we ended up Almost overnight, in at in at war with the three biggest military powers on earth, which was Italy, Japan, and Germany. They've been building up their arms for years. We were the 18th largest armed forces. We were able to turn on a dime, and no other country would be able to do this, and turn those car factories into bomb and tank factories within weeks. And that's what happened. And we were we became the only, the only country on the globe who was really capable of of of, of uh, conducting global warfare. And you know, and they we supplied everybody. 
I, I don't have the figures in front of me, and maybe you don't remember because it's been a while since you wrote the book, but the amount of production that came out of these auto plants is staggering. Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's, it defies the <clears throat> imagination. They could do it that yeah. quickly. And they did. The thing was it was kind of inspiring because they all, they all got together. You know, these were companies mm-hmm. that were just, you know, really, really highly competitive. And they had these meetings and they all sat down and said, you know, this is our war. This is serious. We are really threatened here. You know, they're mm-hmm. threatened like, you know, global warming. And they got together and they did it. They cooperated and they all took contracts and they, they were allowed to compete somewhat. But it worked and they basically turned everything around and, and you know, wow. There's another great book that came out a couple of years ago called Freedom's Forge, which details uh, all of this in, in great detail. It was a source of mine for the book. It was a, it was a great book. I'm yeah. not surprised. There's yeah. an awful yeah. lot of good information there. We have some calls I want to get to in a moment, but I also want to talk about what happened right after the war because that's when the automobile industry exploded once again. Well, yeah. After the war, uh, we, you went into the era of – Anything seemed possible in America. Mm-hmm. We had just won a, a world war. We were – and we supplied everybody. We were, we were the dominant uh, economic, uh, social, uh, cultural force in the world. So uh, cars were they, – they kicked up cars again and they played to that. And Harley you – know, that's when that's when Finns went on a Cadillac and, and it, they, it went back up to record levels again. And that's when I say you know, Finns became sort of a, a metaphor for the, for the spirit of the country. The, the, the can-do, yeah, we can do this sort of thing. There's nothing we can't do. Any dream can be accomplished, that sort of era. The Finns being the title of your book, and yeah. it also is something that Jay was calling us from Normandy wants to talk about, so let's bring him in at this point. Jay, you want to talk Finns? Yeah, really, always. <laughs> but By the way, were Bill Mitchell and Harley Earl, were they rivals? One um, Bill Mitchell, the the father of the Carvette was was it Harley Earl? No, but, that was Harley. Uh, Bill Mitchell was was Harley's right hand guy. He was his star, and he took over for Harley. He was Harley's handpicked successor, and he was even more colorful than Harley, and yeah. and more profane. <laughs> well, know? great. Um, and then also, who was the main man behind all the the great sins of the of the Chevys, the Caddies, and also Chrysler really elevated the fins uh, after it got going, the fin warfare. Well, the Chevys and Cadillac, that, Cadillacs, that was under Harley. That was his staff that did that under his. And he, even though he didn't draw the fins or whatever, anything that went on anything that went on a, on a GM car, Harley said, yeah, that one. Put that on there. Yeah, not that. that he directed everything. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the Chrysler, the, the forward look, was done by uh, uh, Virgil Exner, who was a protege of Harley's, who learned how to do the, the styling under Harley. And when he left, to, he first left to go to a Studebaker, uh, Harley was so upset that he cried when, when Virgil left because mm-hmm. he was that. And then Virgil, of course, goes on, and he's the guy who, who put the fins on the, on the Plymouths and, and the Chryslers in, in uh, uh, 57 and just blew you know, GM off the, uh, off the road for a while. They were stunned at that. There's a scene in the book where they see those things for the first time parked at the Plymouth plant, and they cannot believe it. They've been you know, lapped like that. A, a lot of Harley's uh, protégés and uh, people that worked with him did leave to go someplace sure. else. Sure. Well, he very was, successful in their own and he life. was very difficult to, to to deal with. So they, you know, and they they were the best there was. So they got hired by every other company, hired and and eventually by the by the, by the late fifties was run by former Harley taught people. What what inspired the Finn? Uh, an airplane? Well, it was an airplane. It was the P thirty eight. 
Uh, and the guy, he, they were they were shown it one day. They were taken out to this this to Suffrage Field. Uh, Harley's got them in out there, and his designers. They looked at it, and it was it was before the war. And one of them, uh, um, uh, Frank Hershey, he was like work on it. He had this idea that he thought of you know fins. He was thinking of animals, fish fins, you know, and sharks and things mm-hmm. like that. And he started doing. You know, sketches that got put away when the war started because, you know, they, they, the, the, the Japanese attacked right after that. Sure. After the war, he pulled them out and they went back to the idea of, you know, fish. And those fins could be dangerous. As you point out in the oh, book, yeah. they, they killed people. Yeah, people did, people did <laughs> die. If, if yeah, you ran into a fin, you could get well, a chance yeah, of getting were horrific <laughs> stories of little kids playing baseball, you yeah. know, and, and going to catch a fly and falling on, a, you know, on the back of a fin and getting speared. So, oh, wow. yeah. Let's take another call. Max will join us. Uh, Max, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. I'll be quick as possible. Let's never forget the name Raymond Lowy, but St. Louis... As the second largest producer of automobiles, we had the big three here at Union and Natural Bridge in the city of St. Louis, GM, producing Corvettes until um, 81, I guess. And you had Chrysler and Fenton, and you had Ford and uh, Hazelwood. So, But I will leave you with this. Uh, there was great pride of producing of Carvettes when you took the tour of the GM plant. Uh, when you entered the Carvette assembly building, uh, they put, they said proudly, America's only sports car. And maybe if they would have uh, allowed to be here a little bit longer, they might have had strobes and uh, uh, and smoke. I don't know. But when that door opened up, that's what they what the tour guide would say: America's only production sports car. Thank you, Max. Well, interesting. I'm from St. Louis, and the seeds of this book were sown in 1955 on a sunny day in in our subdivision where I lived. And my father had just started working for Chrysler Corporation. He was a sales manager, and he pulled into the driveway. We were all gathered around the the, the ice cream truck of an evening. He pulled into the driveway in a pink and white DeSoto (laughs) Fire Dome convertible, and all the kids ran from the fire from the from the ice cream truck to the car, and and. That was it for me. Cars were everything to me for, for the next 20 years. So, I yeah. wonder how many jobs went away when these three uh, automotive companies left St. Oh, Louis. Yeah, I'm sure a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was, yeah. It's, it seems like a thousand years ago to, it, to me that those, that those furnaces were still burning in those places. Yeah. Let's bring in Jerry calling from O'Fallon. Make it quick, Jerry, if you would. Yes, really quickly. I've been a student of car design my entire life. I wonder what Harley Earl and some of the other designers that you've been mentioning would think of our turn in the past decade or so uh, towards more retro styling. You know, the cars of the 40s, 50s, 60s were looking ahead, and now we've kind of turned around with the retro Thunderbird, the VW Beetle, the PT Cruiser in the other direction. I think Harley would like some of those a lot because, uh, you know, uh, he probably hate the fact that, uh, what, 90% of the cars right now, if you just ride, ride down the street, are either white, gray, silver, or black. And every now and then you'll see a red one, but they're always kind of the same red, and, and that's about it. That would drive him crazy. You know, I mean, you ask yourself, when's the last time you saw a really cool green car? You know, you just don't see it. One of the things you point out in the book that I did not know and was surprised about, and that was uh, the story of the Cadillacs and African-Americans and the fact that at one point or for a long period of time, Cadillac would not sell to blacks. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And was why, it shocking, why and how right? did that change? Well, they, they had this idea. But, I mean, it was such a racist situation back then, and that's that's where we come from. Uh, they, they thought and, that selling— And still are, to oh, some degree. <laughs> really? Yeah. They had this idea if you sold the blacks, it would degrade the brand. They wanted to be classy, so you didn't sell the black people. And then the uh, this German guy who was the head of uh, uh, Cadillac Servicing— um, uh, they were getting ready to, to kill off the, the Cadillac during the uh, the Depression because uh, it wasn't selling. And they were having a meeting among the top executives. And this guy b- literally busted into the meeting and said, just give me five minutes. I want to tell you something you don't know. And what he told him was that he learned from going to Cadillac service centers that there were a lot of black people who bought Cadillacs. They came in with the Cadillacs they own. And the reason they, they had them is they were paying white people $400 to front the purchase. Straw parties. Know? And then he says, so he said to these millionaire people on the board and stuff, said, well, why let someone else, you know, take $400 away from your sale? Why don't you market to the, the Negroes, as they said back then. So they, they decided to let him, they put him in charge of Cadillac and let him market to the, the Negro population, you know, as they called it. And he turned it around. You know, he saved the brand. Saved the, he's, he was known as the man who saved Cadillac, and they made him president of, of, of the Cadillac division. That's just that. one of the, the fascinating uh, <laughs> tidbits that you have in the book. It's filled with them. I mean, we, yeah, we can't I kept, even begin. I kept, discuss, I kept thinking, finding these things going, oh, my God, I didn't know that. You well, know? folks who want to learn more, they can go to Left Bank Books tonight at 7 o'clock, and you'll be there and talk about it. But in the time we have left, I also want to talk about the the women's role in all of this, Not right. not not only in the purchasing of cars, but in the designing of them. Uh, they came into the picture at some point. They did, uh, and and it was kind of a gimmick that they that they did. Harley hired, uh, I think GM, and through Harley hired nine uh, female designers, industrial designers, and this was at a time when industrial design was just coming on. And he hired them from Pratt, you know, one college, uh, and they were all, you know. Very good artists, and they made a big deal of this, and they called them the damsels of design, and they mm-hmm. and they he posed with pictures of them everywhere, and they got lots of publicity, and they loved it because they they got these jobs that they would have never gotten. They were paid five thousand dollars a year, which was huge. They could have made that money anywhere else, and they were given privileges that even the men on their level didn't have. They could eat in the, the dining room, but they were in the in the GM tech center. There were what. Seven or eight or nine mm-hmm. of these women among two thousand male you know people working in the design department, uh, and they were never allowed to design the exterior of a car. They were kept in the house in the kitchen and you know and they were just they were they were uh, relegated to making the interiors you know adding the female touch to the interiors but right. it did launch their careers and they had you know they were always grateful they went they weren't bitter about it but they were disappointed well, only a few seconds left when did they learn that it's the women who actually buy the cars that they well, they're the ones that make well, the that, they had they had they had learned that that's why they hired them <laughs> but they weren't ready to give them the power Wait. You know, that came later. That what? didn't even come. I don't think it's come yet. <laughs> and then there's the issue of planned obsolescence. We only have 30 seconds left, but they learn make a car that will only last a couple of years and people will buy more cars. Yeah, well, that's right. right. Exactly. Yeah. But that's what that's what designers do, though. Designers live on planned yeah. obsolescence. That's right. And that became like a dirty word. And that's sort of what took down... You know the the, the fins thing, and and Raymond Lowy was the guy who was anti fins, and oh. the idea that that uh, that planned obsolescence like they were taking advantage of their buyers. That's how how it was sort of characterized. As I say, there's so much more to learn. You can learn it tonight at Left Bank Books at uh, at seven o'clock. Bill Nadelzeder, thank you so much for being with us. Fascinating book, great thank read, you. and lots of history and lots of fun stuff. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Great to be here.
The Gateway brings you the day's news each weekday from around the St. Louis region and the state capitals in Jefferson City. Our schools are accredited. We don't need this bill. And Springfield. How many more years must pass before lawmakers see time is of the essence? I'm Abby Larico. Join me each weekday for The Gateway on the STLPR app or wherever you get podcasts.